Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! U.S. is not alone, but its role has been to act to make negotiations harder to achieve, unlikely. That's as recently as late April, as far as we know. Russia's launched its largest strikes on Ukraine in months, attacking Kyiv, Lviv, and other cities two days after Russia accused Ukraine of blowing up a key bridge connecting Russia to Crimea. As the war in Ukraine escalates, we'll speak to Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad, who are calling for the United States to push for negotiations to end the war. Then we mark Indigenous Peoples Day by remembering the indigenous actress and activist Shashin Littlefeather, who died last week. Nearly 50 years ago, she spoke at the Oscars on behalf of Marlon Brando, who boycotted the ceremony to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans. He very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. And on television, in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. Sasheen Littlefeather's face boos from the crowd and threats of physical violence from the actor John Wayne and mocking by Clint Eastwood. The speech derailed her acting career, but she never stopped speaking out. We hear the late Sasheen Littlefeather in her own words and speak to the legendary indigenous musician and activist Buffy St. Marie. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Ukraine, Kyiv, Lviv, and other cities have come under intense attack from Russian missile strikes following Saturday's explosion at a key bridge linking Russia to Crimea, the Ukrainian territory annexed by Russia in 2014. The blast on that bridge, the longest in Europe, collapsed two roadways and reportedly left three people dead. President Vladimir Putin blamed Ukrainian special forces for the explosion, which he called an act of terrorism. Ukrainian officials say retaliatory assaults by Russia killed at least 10 people and struck infrastructure in 12 regions of Ukraine, knocking out electricity and water supplies. On Sunday, Russian missiles rained down in the southeastern city of Zaporizhia, killing at least 13 people. This came after the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear plant temporarily lost its power supply Saturday due to shelling and had to switch to an emergency diesel energy generators to prevent a nuclear disaster. This is 10-year-old Bodan Pavlenko, who survived Sunday's attack on Zaporizhia. I heard the sirens and some person next to me screaming. There was no mobile connection. It was horrific. My mother took me under her arm. Then I looked after my little brother and sister. 
The Russian Federation, the way it's doing all of this, special operation, I don't think that this is a special operation. News from Ukraine. The governor of Donetsk province says mass burial sites have been found in the recently liberated town of Liman. It's unknown how many bodies were discovered, but one site reportedly held about 200 individual graves. In Iran, a live news broadcast on state-run television was apparently hacked Saturday evening during a segment featuring the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. The hackers placed a photo of Khamenei with a target over his face on the screen, along with the messages, join us and rise up, and the blood of our youth is dripping from your grip. The image also displays photos of three women killed in recent protests in Iran, as well as Masa Amini, who died while in custody of the so-called morality police. Amini's death has sparked mass demonstrations in Iran and around the world. The group Iran Human Rights says at least 185 people have been killed in recent protests, including at least 19 children. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed four Palestinian teenagers in three separate attacks over the weekend. The youngest victim was 14-year-old Adel Ibrahim Daoud, who was shot dead near the Israeli separation barrier. On Saturday, an Israeli soldier was fatally shot at a military checkpoint in East Jerusalem. In other news from the occupied territories, Israel's agreed to pay $141,000 to the family of Omar Assad, an 80-year-old Palestinian. Palestinian-American man who died after being violently detained by Israeli forces in January. It's extremely rare for the Israeli military to admit wrongdoing or compensate Palestinian victims of its crimes. The United Nations is calling for an investigation into the deaths of 15 migrants found Friday on a beach in western Libya. Eleven of the victims were found partially burned in the charred remains of a boat. Four other bodies with injuries were found near the boat. The U.N. says the migrants' deaths likely resulted from clashes between rival human smugglers in an area that's frequently used as a launching point for asylum seekers hoping to reach Italy by boat. The International Organization for Migration reports at least 216 people have died attempting to cross the Mediterranean so far this year, with another 724 missing and presumed dead. Here in the United States, judges temporarily blocked abortion bans in Ohio and Arizona Friday, while challenges to the bans proceed. Following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade in June, at least 13 states have enacted a near-total ban on abortion. Meanwhile, people took to the streets Saturday in nationwide rallies organized by the Women's March ahead of next month's midterms. In December, protesters marched to the U.S. Capitol. We're here today because my blood and my tears had to fight to vote, had to fight to get Roe in the first place. My personal attitude is that I don't believe that anybody should be made to become a mom if it's not in the cards for them. And I don't think that politics should determine that. It's, it's my body, my choice for every woman in the world, not even just our country. In Nevada, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville launched into a racist tirade at a Trump-held rally in support of Republican midterm candidates Saturday. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullsh- 
Journalist and author Jamel Hill tweeted in response to the racist remarks, quote, a reminder that Tubby, Tommy Tuberville was a collegiate coach for nearly 30 years, during which he coached scores of black players. He made millions off their abilities, but here's what he really thinks about black folks, she said. And San Antonio, Texas, Bear County District Attorney Joe Gonzalez has named James Brennan as the police officer who shot 17-year-old Eric Cantu as he was eating in a McDonald's parking lot last week. Cantu remains hospitalized in critical condition. Brennan opened fire on the teen moments after opening the driver's side door, even though Cantu posed no risk and was unarmed. In other news from Texas, the Uvalde School District has suspended its entire police force. The move comes as families continue to demand answers over the jailed police response, the failed police response to the May 24th massacre, when a gunman shot dead 19 schoolchildren and their two teachers. Police officers on the scene waited 77 minutes before confronting the teenage shooter. In Utah, a jury has acquitted two animal rights activists who faced prison time for rescuing two sick piglets from a Smithfield Foods factory farm in 2017. It's a major victory for animal rights advocates and the group behind the 2017 rescue Direct Action Everywhere, DXE, who have been fighting to establish a right to rescue animals in distress. This is Wayne Chung speaking to journalists and supporters after the verdict Saturday night. You know, these two beautiful creatures who didn't deserve the crate and the suffering they were living in, and and the jury bought that too. So on to the next rescue, huh? In New York, two hospitals have agreed to pay $165 million to 147 patients who accused a gynecologist of sexual abuse. Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York Presbyterian announced the agreement Friday. Robert Haddon surrendered his medical license after he was convicted in 2016, but was not sentenced to any prison time. He's currently awaiting trial on separate federal charges of sexually abusing dozens of women over two decades. New York City Mayor Eric Adams Friday declared a state of emergency in response to the thousands of asylum seekers arriving to the city in buses sent from Texas and other Republican-led states. Since April, over 17,000 asylum seekers have been bused to New York from the U.S.-Mexico border. Mayor Adams spoke at a news conference Friday. We need help from the federal government, help from the state of New York. New York City is doing our part. And now others must step up and join us. From our federal partners, we need legislation that will allow these asylum seekers to legally work now. And in London, thousands of supporters of Julian Assange formed a massive human chain around the British Parliament Saturday to demand freedom for the jailed WikiLeaks founder. Solidarity actions were held in other cities around the world, including in Washington, D.C., where protesters called on the Justice Department to drop its efforts to extradite Assange. He faces up to 175 years in U.S. prison on espionage and hacking charges for exposing U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is Julian and Assange's wife, Stella, speaking in London. That it casts a 
a very dark shadow over the British government that it hasn't stopped this. Uh, the British government should be speaking to its counterparts in the United States to bring this matter to an end immediately. It's already gone on for three and a half years. It is a stain on the United Kingdom. It is a stain on the Biden administration. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. As the war in Ukraine escalates, we speak to Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad, co-authors of the new book, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Stay with us. You creeps of disguise. Yeah, disinformation. It's like worms in your eyes. You privileged bankers. You gambler thieves. You profit on war. You think it's just less money in peace. So that's how it's done. Time after time. Country after country. And crime after crime. You pretend it's religion. Like there's no one to blame. For the dead and impoverished. In your little patriot game. Honey, that's the war racket. That's the war racket. That's the war racket. That's the war racket. You got the world's greatest power. And you team up with thugs. Make a fortune on weapons. Destruction and drugs. But your flags and boots and uniforms, they start to all smell the, the same. War Racket by Buffy St. Marie. We'll be speaking with a Native American musician later in the broadcast. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's launched its largest strikes on Ukraine in months, attacking Kyiv, Lviv and other cities. Today's missile strikes come two days after Russia accused Ukraine of blowing up a key bridge connecting Russia to Crimea. As the war in Ukraine continues to escalate, we return to our recent conversation with Vijay Prashad and Noam Chomsky, co-authors of the new book, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. I spoke with them several weeks ago with Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez. Vijay Prashad is director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He joined us from New York. And Noam Chomsky joined us from Brazil, the world-renowned political dissident linguist and author, laureate professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Arizona and professor emeritus at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he taught for more than half a century. You both talk about allowing Russia and Ukraine to negotiate, but um, how does one do that? And talk about exactly what the U.S. can do now, Professor Chomsky. What the U.S. can do is stop acting to prevent negotiations. For a long time, there's no time to review the record, but the position of the United States has been to try to undermine possibilities of negotiations. They're not alone in this. So if you take a look at the Macron-Putin uh, discussions up to a few days before the invasion, President Macron was indeed trying very hard to avoid the invasion by uh, offering various options uh, for a peaceful settlement. Uh, Putin, we have the actual transcript of this 
no guesswork. Uh, Putin was dismissive uh, at the very end, a couple of days before the invasion. He just dismissed it with contempt, said, sorry, I've got to go ice skating, something like that. So the U.S. Is, US is not alone, but its role has been to act to make negotiations harder to achieve, unlikely. That's as recently as late April, as far as we know. Well, one thing the United States can do is stop acting like that. Stop, drop the position, the official position, that the war must go on to weaken Russia severely, meaning no negotiations. Would that open the way to negotiations? Diplomacy? Can't be sure. There's only one way to find out. That's to try. If you don't try, of course it won't happen. Uh, if I may, I'd like to add a word about something that was touched on but not developed sufficiently in my view, and it's highly significant. China. What's happening with regard to China? It's barely being reported, but it's of a supreme significance. Uh, there has been an agreement that's held for 50 years. It's called the One China Policy. It goes back to the 70s. Uh, the agreement is between U.S. and China that Taiwan is part of China, not in question, uh, but neither party, U.S. or China, will act to disrupt the peaceful relations that persist. It's called strategic ambiguity. It's held for 50 years. That's a lot in world affairs. The United States is now undermining Pelosi's reckless, stupid visit was one example. But more significant are two other things. One is that the United States, this has accelerated under the Biden administration, is promoting a policy of what's called encircling China with sentinel states, basically U.S. satellites, heavily armed with weapons uh, aimed at China, precision weapons, uh, to encircle it, to keep it from uh, the aggression that's contrived in the U.S. propaganda. More significant still is what just happened a couple of weeks ago. On September 14th, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, passed proposed legislation, bipartisan, almost unanimous, calling, virtually calling for a war with China. Not their word, of course. If you read the resolution, it called for uh, substantially enhancing U.S. armaments to China, uh, changing relations to Taiwan, sorry, changing relations with Taiwan to elevate Taiwan to the level of a non-NATO partner to be treated uh, as any other sovereign country diplomatically, uh, uh, moving towards interoperability of weapon systems with the United States. If you pay attention to what was happening in Ukraine for the last decade or so, that's pretty much the program that was followed by the United States to move towards integrating 
Ukraine de facto into the U.S. NATO military system. Senate Foreign Relations Committee is now proposing to do something quite similar with regard to Taiwan. It's an extraordinary provocation. It severely undermines the one China policy that has held. It's barely discussed. In the background is the context of the encirclement program. This is as if the Senate, the bipartisan Senate, is hell-bent on involving the United States in two major wars, each of which could be a terminal war. All of this is going on. It's not secret. It's not being discussed. Again, it's as if some kind of uh, insanity is pervading the social and political atmosphere. Uh, I wanted to ask Vijay Prashad, um, the issue of uh, humanitarian intervention. Uh, in the old days, the old 19th century imperialists and early 20th century imperialists went to Asia, Africa, Latin America to civilize uh, the population, supposedly. Now they are uh, now we are seeing re uh, repeatedly the United States uh, resorting to armed conflicts to uh, for, quote, humanitarian reasons, to defend human rights, uh, to uh, to preserve democracy. We saw that in Serbia, in Libya, uh, in, in Syria. Uh, and we see the U.S. government agencies like the National Endowment uh, for uh, Democracy or fund, U.S. government funded agencies, USAID, now headed by Samantha Powers, the, uh, the champion of humanitarian intervention. Uh, could you talk about how the United States basically funds civil society groups in various countries to foment uh, opposition uh, to governments that uh, it is opposed to? You know, Juan, I just reported a story from Haiti, which is undergoing a major set of protests. Uh, these protests have been going on for the past four years, getting very little um, attention around the world. Um, people are on the streets. They are desperate. Uh, fuel prices have gone up, escalated beyond belief. And there's been no uh, commentary about this. Well, Ever since the assassination of the head of government, um, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Joyce's Manuel, ever since his assassination, Ariel Henry has been placed on the um, on the, the in the government by the United States. I mean, he was effectively put there by the so-called core group led by the U.S. Well, it's interesting when you look at his own record. He emerged um, in the struggle against Jean-Bertrand Aristide. You know, Mr. Aristide needs to be in the Guinness Book of World Records because he's the only world leader I know who has been cooed twice by the United States. Um, when Mr. Aristide, attempting desperately to produce a social democratic policy for Haiti, Haiti, a country which had the first revolution in the Americas, a real proletarian revolution, uh, the first major revolution, it was strangled by the French. In fact, until the 1950s, Haiti had to pay indemnity for what? For the people who had freed themselves.
criminals, for quote-unquote the slaves. Well, Mr. Aristide was trying to drive a good policy and so on. Ariel Henry was funded by the, in the, in, in the International Republican Institute and the National Endowment for Democracy in the United States. Um, many of the actors who came into the anti-Aristide movement were financed by the United States government. And then eventually when people like Ariel Henry, who fashions himself as a neurosurgeon, but in fact is a pawn of the United States government, when they came into positions of high office, they NGOized Haiti. I mean, Haiti is a bastion of NGOs. Um, they went along with the Obama administration to prevent the rise of minimum wage. At the time, the U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince said, well, you know, we shouldn't raise the minimum wage uh, because then essentially the unwashed uh, will get money. Well, that unwashed then went into gangs. Many of those gangs um, are in some ways the only organized force in Haiti. I mean, look at the destruction that so-called humanitarian intervention brought to Haiti. You don't have to go far from the United States to see it. You don't have to go to Iraq or you don't have to go to Libya, countries destroyed by U.S. wars in the name of democracy. I mean, when are people going to come to understand you can't bring democracy by warfare. You have to negotiate with people. You have to let people develop their own dignified histories. Um, you can't bully countries into doing things. And by the way, there's no credibility for this. Because let's face it, at the same time that the United States said that, oh, we're going to go to war in Libya to prevent an atrocity, uh, an atrocity which later Amnesty International found, you know, hadn't happened. That was an entire hoax. Um, at the same time as the United States was saying that, its principal ally in that conflict uh, was in the Gulf, was Saudi Arabia and Qatar, where there are atrocities every day against working people, against people who come from South Asia, from the Philippines and so on. There's no concern about these workers who have to hand over their passport, get treated in a form of modern day slavery. No concern about that. Where's the credibility? in this. It's striking that people in the United States seem to fall into this trap over and over again, having faith in a government that feeds you the lie that it's out there to promote democracy through warfare. You want to see the detritus of this again? Look at what's happening in Haiti. There's very little avenue uh, out of this crisis for the Haitian people. And one of the elements, by the way, of this crisis is the U.S. pressure campaign on Venezuela, because Venezuela, through the scheme called Petro Carib, was providing Haiti with cut price energy. And because of the pressure campaign on Venezuela, Petro Carib essentially fell apart, and Haiti has not been able to get um, the kind of energy it requires. So, I mean, it's quite clear if you look at the evidence that these wars in the name of democracy or these wars in the name of humanitarian intervention simply don't add up. Talk to the Haitians, talk to the Afghans, and you'll understand how they see it. Uh, Noam Chomsky, I wanted to ask you about uh, peace movements or the absence of peace movements. During the Vietnam War, during the Iraq War, there were vibrant peace movements uh, in the United States. But now during this war in Ukraine, 
uh, even the most left wing uh, uh, representatives in Congress and the Senate, whether it's Bernie Sanders, AOC uh, and others, have basically gone along uh, with continuing to uh, finance and uh, and and pursue this uh, the, the support of this war in Ukraine. Uh, your sense of the absence of a peace movement right now in the U.S.? First of all, we should be realistic about the peace movement in Vietnam and Iraq. In the case of Vietnam, it took years to develop any kind of a peace movement. Uh, by the time a significant peace movement had developed by 1967, uh, South Vietnam, which had been the main, or was always the main target of attack, had been practically destroyed uh, to the point where the leading specialist on the topic, Bernard Fall, who was no dove, incidentally, uh, uh, warned that uh, Vietnam may not survive as a cultural and historical entity under the most severe attacks at any country that size has ever suffered. By that time, you began to get a peace movement, not much in Congress, incidentally, very little, uh, and certainly not much among the great intellectual community. In fact, there never was a peace movement in those sectors. There was a popular peace movement, which did have an effect after years and years of effort to develop it. And that's when the United States was wiping out uh, much of Indochina. Case of Iraq War, important. First time in history that there was a major protest against the war before it was officially launched. I say officially because it was already underway. Uh, but then it declined. There was not much protest later when the United States was carrying out horrendous atrocities in uh, Iraq, uh, Fallujah, and, and other places, just horrifying atrocities, very little protest. In this case, the United States is not directly involved. It's not bombing, hasn't sent troops, it's more indirect. So I don't think it's very surprising in comparison with the others that you don't see much of a peace movement development. You should. It's there, but it's vilified, of course. Anyone who opens their mouth and says, look, let's try to end this horror the way most of the world wants, almost all the world, gets denounced, vilified, uh, Putin supporter, um, commie rat, and so on and so forth. That's even true for uh, highly respected uh, major war criminals like Henry Kissinger. He, tr he tries to say it, immediately demonized. So yes, it's there, but it's marginalized. Uh, it, and uh, the issue, I don't think, is sending defensive weapons to Ukraine. I think that's, you can make a good case for that. The problem is what is not discussed. The continual, first of all, the long program of the United States for over a decade to integrate Ukraine within the U.S.-NATO uh, military system. It actually reached the point where 
U.S. military journals referred to Ukraine as a de facto member of NATO. Obviously, the Russians could see it. Everybody could see it who wanted to. Policy was now being pursued with regard to Taiwan. And then extending to the point where it is right now, war must continue until uh, Russia is severely weakened, implication, no negotiations. Events of last April are case in point. Well, there should be, uh, there's no, the, the parts, there are parts of the peace movement or that are uh, pursuing that, but they're simply demonized. They don't make it into the mainstream. Uh, even parts of what's called the left condemn them sharply because you have to, uh, you can't put any conditions on national support for Ukraine. I wanted to ask both Vijay Prashad and then Noam Chomsky about Russians in the streets protesting, more than a thousand arrested, hundreds of thousands apparently leaving Russia now because of the mobilization that Putin has announced, over 300,000 people to be sent to Ukraine. Vijay Prashad, your thoughts? Well, look, you know, we are with peace uh, builders all over the world. And obviously, nobody wants to be involved in any kind of war conflict or anything like that. Um, you know, when you have conscription, people are not interested. Uh, it's quite clear that in in Russia, in other parts of Eastern Europe, there's dismay at this war. Uh, nobody wants it. But it has been um, something that I think um, has been pushed and provoked, and people have been prodded into this, but it's not something that you go into happily. Um, you know, I'm on my way, Amy, to Cuba, where the Cubans have suffered another hurricane. That's Hurricane Ian. Um, within uh, to about 48 hours, they were able to get their grid back online. Uh, there are people, of course, unhappy that um, it took 48 hours. In Puerto Rico, by the way, it took two weeks. Uh, still, 250,000 people from Hurricane Fiona haven't got their power back. But look, look at the way it works. Um, people are suffering in Cuba from the impact of a hurricane. United States won't uh, remove the blockade. Um, of course, people in, in Russia are against the war. They are also suffering in one way or the other. They don't want to be conscripted. We need to fight for negotiations. We need to be peace builders in the world, not to accelerate conflict. And, and I think Noam is quite correct. Anybody who calls for peace, anybody who has a dissenting opinion is called now a purveyor of disinformation. I think this is a very dangerous situation we've got ourselves into, where those who are for peace building are, are maligned and those who are uh, wanting to accelerate war are considered to be heroes of human rights. A very, very dangerous situation in the culture where um, those who are peace builders simply cannot find a way to be heard or to be taken seriously. I think this is a problem for the culture, uh, not just for our, you know, immediate conjuncture. Noam Chomsky, your thoughts on this issue and uh, the subtitle of your book, um, the very end of it, The Fragility of U.S. Power. That is not in the very distant background of all of these discussions. Uh, the Ukraine conflict has 
accelerated a process that has been developing of what is going to be the shape of the world ahead. What's the structure of global society? There are conflicting visions, and the Ukraine, uh, Putin's criminal invasion of Ukraine has highlighted them. They go way back. One of the most important developments in post-Second World War history, which is rarely discussed, is the effort of the global South to find a place at the table as decolonization was taking place. 60s, 70s, under the leadership of African, Latin American, other significant, highly significant figures, tried to create what they called a new international order. It involved UNCTAD in the United Nations, uh, other new institutions, later BRICS, especially under Brazilian influence, uh, try to find a new international order and a new information order in which the global South would have a place. It was crushed by violence and deceit. It's a major chapter of world history. Well, it didn't disappear. It keeps reappearing. It's now reappearing once again uh, very clearly with the refusal of the global South to go along with the U.S.-British uh, policies in Europe. Uh, and, of course, they simply ridicule the claims about uh, humanitarian intervention and uh, uh, support for democracy and the U.N. Charter among the leading, uh, from the people who are the leading violators of all of these principles as the South doesn't have to be informed. They know about it from centuries of experience up to the present. Uh, so they simply ridicule it, including all the talk about humanitarian intervention. Well, question is, are we going to move towards a, uh, this became very clear after the collapse of the Soviet Union, will we have a unilateral world dominated by the United States as the sole hegemonic power? as, of course, the U.S. wants. It's uh, called the Atlanticist vision based on NATO, where the U.S. sets the rules. One vision of post-Soviet world affairs. The other is the vision that was advanced by Mikhail Gorbachev, goes back to Charles de Gaulle, Willy Brandt, Olaf Palma, others, throughout the Cold War period, who sought to create a Europe or even a Eurasia, which would be an independent force in world affairs, not under the control of the United States, what was called in the Cold War years the Third World. Gorbachev's picture was a what he called a common European home from Lisbon to Vladivostok, no military alliances, no victors, no defeated, cooperation on all sides to move towards a kind of social democratic, uh, uh, united, uh, cooperative uh, region. That's very much in the interests of the participants. The U.S. is, of course, strongly opposed to it.
Putin's invasion of Ukraine was a tremendous gift to the United States. He offered to the U.S. on a silver platter what it's always wanted, Europe subordinate, subservient, uh, submitting to U.S. orders. Now, it's not clear how long that will last for Europe, Germany, the German-based industrial system. It's a disaster. Uh, one of the most informed and astute international analysts, Thomas Pally, wrote recently that uh, the uh, marriage between Europe and Russia is a marriage made in heaven. They're complementary. They need each other. Uh, accommodation between Western Europe and Russia would open the way for Europe to have access, direct access, to the Golden Road Initiative, which is unifying much of Eurasia under Chinese control to the huge Chinese market. They're complementary in every respect and need each other. Well, how long will Europe agree to hang on to Washington's cocktails instead of moving towards something like the Gorbachev, the gold style uh, uh, European common home? That's a major question in world affairs. Uh, the debates over Ukraine are taking place against that context, which should not be forgotten. And of course, always is the effort of the global south to be heard. That's most of the populated in the world, former colonial world, trying to break free of the uh, shackles of the centuries-old colonial system. Shows itself in many ways. 1970s was a major, major period, an effort that was beaten back by the U.S. and other imperial powers. It's reviving again. All of this is in the background. Major questions. Ukraine focuses attention on it. What I mentioned about China and Taiwan, far too little discussed, is a major point of tension and threat that may bring the world down. We have to pay attention to that. The background issue is pretty simple. Either the great powers will find a way to accommodate and work together on our common problems, like global warming, nuclear war, pandemics, and so on. Either they will find a way to accommodate or we all go down to disaster together. It's as simple as that. Professor Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad, co-authors of the new book, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. To see more of our interview with them, go to democracynow.org. Coming up on this Indigenous Peoples' Day, we speak to legendary singer and activist Buffy St. Marie, and we remember Sasheen Littlefeather, who spoke at the Oscars in 1973 on behalf of Marlon Brando, who boycotted the ceremony to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans. Stay with us.
sit at home with a light in the window. Back to the The Dream Tree by Buffy St. Marie. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today's Indigenous Peoples Day. We turn to the legendary Indigenous musician and activist Buffy St. Marie, who was born on the Plains Cree First Nation Reserve in Saskatchewan. She's also written and sung about the struggles of Native Americans and First Nations for decades. She worked with the American Indian Movement and began a foundation for American Indian education. Her political activism would lead her to be largely blacklisted from commercial radio in the 70s. On Sunday, Democracy Now! reached Buffy St. Marie in Hawaii, where she lives, and asked her for her message on this Indigenous Peoples Day. Indigenous Peoples Day, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge concept. I have—the way I think of it, I think of it in two ways. One is how do we handle the hard information that we must know about, and the other is what can we provide to offset that information as we try and fix things. The most important thing, the most important missing element, I think, in um, world understanding of Indigenous people has to do with the fact that Indigenous people in this world suffer from a handicap that others don't have to face. And it has to do with the doctrine of discovery, which is a 15th century papal bull. Think of it as a, a bulletin from the Pope saying what God really wants. And what this thing says The doctrine of discovery, it says that explorers coming from inhabited lands were instructed by the Pope to invade, capture, and subdue the inhabitants, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and to appropriate to himself and his successors all of their lands, kingdoms, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to his use and profit. And please don't say oh, this is over, that's the 15th century, because it's still on the books in U.S. law, Canadian law today. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg used it to defeat the Oneida tribe in 2005. So the doctrine of discovery is still a real living reality in the lives of indigenous people throughout the world that has been colonized. And, you know, the Pope recently went to Edmonton, Canada. A lot of my relatives were there to see him. A lot of people turned out. And everybody was, you know, raising fists against the Pope and the Catholic Church for the doctrine of discovery. But that's really aiming at the wrong target because the church has already done away with it. They're not continuing to do that kind of invasion thing. There aren't any more countries left, I guess, to invade. But... What really needs to be done is people who are interested in this, instead of instead of yelling at the church, we need to expunge it from the legal systems of each and every country where it still exists throughout the colonial world. Yes, the Catholics established it, but it's up to modern nations to expunge it, to get rid of it, to make it go away. The other half of what I have to say on Indigenous Peoples Day really has to do with coming up with the positivities that nobody knows about Indigenous people, too. And I work, uh, I'm on the board of the Downey Wenjack Foundation in Canada, and I work with, you know, before I was ever a singer, I was a teacher. And so I work with kids a lot. And I feel so sorry for little kids who are hearing about just the horrors of our, our awful, you know, what has happened to us. They're hearing about uh, residential schools, you know, um, exhuming the bodies of children who were just put in mass graves, you know, they weren't even identified whether it was a boy or a girl, how old, where they came from, nothing. 
that and the other missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, you know, thousands and thousands of women turning up missing or murdered every year. This is big stuff. And we need to know about it. But we need also to be giving each other, especially children, what they need to know about Indigenous people that's just plain positive. We made this little video with the Downey, found- the Downey Wenjack Foundation about positivity. Like, did you know that team sports were invented by Indigenous people on this side of the water? And the rubber ball, too? And arenas with goalposts at either end? And bleachers for the spectators? And protective equipment like shoulder pads? And helmets with animal logos on them? <laughs> it sounds like the NFL! <laughs> So when it's hockey or baseball or lacrosse or football season, tell your friends and celebrate us. If all we think about is one side or the other, we just go in circles. So remember to paddle on both sides of the canoe. That's how you get somewhere. So, I mean, when it's NFL season or basketball or baseball or lacrosse, please remember, indigenous people gave us a whole lot of things, including, ta-da, team sports. So. My take on Indigenous Peoples Day is that there's an awful lot of work yet to be done. It is doable. It's a matter of informing one another without fists in the air and doing the work. But please, let's be thinking about kids and the kind of stuff that they're seeing on television and that they're coming across every day in all parts of their lives. And let's start providing positive stuff for kids. The legendary Indigenous activist and musician Buffy St. Marie speaking to us from Hawaii. On this Indigenous People's Day, we spend the rest of the hour remembering Sashin Littlefeather. She recently died at the age of 75 in 1973. She took the stage at the Oscars on behalf of Marlon Brando, who boycotted the ceremony to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans. Some members of the audience booed and mocked Littlefeather as she addressed the awards ceremony wearing traditional Apache clothing. The winner is... Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and the Godfather, Miss Sashin Littlefeather. Hello, my name is Sashin Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards, that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. And on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando.
Sasheen Littlefeather. The actor John Wayne reportedly attempted to remove Sasheen from the stage, but was restrained by six security guards. Clint Eastwood mocked Littlefeather later in the ceremony. In August, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences finally apologized to her. Just three weeks before her death, she spoke an event organized by the Academy, talked about the night 50 years ago when she arrived at the Academy Awards before that famous speech. It was about 20 minutes to, to 9 o'clock. And here the security guards found this couple, myself in a buckskin dress, and his secretary dressed in an evening gown. We must have looked like the odd couple. <laughs> I'm sure they were wondering, why are we dressed like that? And why are we here? So the guards consulted the head executive producer of the Academy Awards, Howard Koch. And so he came up and he talked to us. And his secretary, Alice, had the official invitation from Marlon Brando. So he said, okay. And he told me right then, if you read that speech and you go over 60 seconds, I will have you put in handcuffs. You see those police over there? I will have you arrested, put in jail. And he said, you have 60 seconds or less to represent Marlon. I said, okay. And I had made this promise to Marlon not to touch that Oscar. And so you see, I wasn't under any pressure that night. <laughs> that the creator was with me. I had prayed to my ancestors to be with me that night. And it was with prayer that I went up there. I went up there like a proud Indian woman with dignity, with courage, with grace, and with humility. And as I began to walk up those steps, I knew that I had to speak the truth. Some people may accept it, and some people may not. At the Academy event in September, Sasheen Littlefeather went on to talk about the significance of receiving an apology from the Academy. In response to that apology, I want to say in 1973, I was a 26-year-old indigenous woman, a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Very few people of color were finding their way through an impractical society. 
that deliberately set out to erase the existence and diversity of Native peoples. Through genocide, oppression, and the unwavering efforts for Indian self-determination, our generation remained hard at work. And we were not the only ones. In 1973, I fulfilled the request of a friend and ally. Marlon Brando asked that I attend the ceremony in his place and refuse the Oscar for Best Actor for the role in The Godfather. And so I did. I knew the impact and the importance of representing all Native people on that night. It was critical for the psyche of all our relations to bring awareness to and interrupt the negative interpretation and representation of Native American people by the film, television, and sports industries Marlon and I knew it urgent to highlight the 1973 American Indian Movement AIM, Occupation of Wounded Knee, South Dakota. They were experiencing a media blackout. Supposedly, Wounded Knee, South Dakota, was a site where a U.S. missile base was going to be built. I, more than anyone, know the impact of what 60 seconds at the Academy Award can mean then and now, 50 years later. I have developed a strong sense of self, community, and a good sense of humor. <laughs> Laughter is good medicine. I come from an ancestral matrilineal society where women are leaders, role models, and teachers of peace, love, harmony, humility, humanity, truth, conversation, and a coming together in our sacred circle of unity. Other may, others may choose to follow in our ways. I am here accepting this apology, not only for me alone, but as the acknowledgement, knowing that it was not only for me, but for all of our nations that also need to hear and deserve this apology tonight. Sasheen Littlefeather, speaking in September. She died at the age of 75 on October 2nd. That does it for our show. We have two full-time job openings, Associate Digital Editor and People and Culture Manager, and we welcome back Tammy Warrenoff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.